0: When people have a baby, uh, you can get this little baby book uh, that looks kind of like this, where you can record a bunch of details about uh, the baby's birth. You can record, okay, what was their weight, what was their height, what uh, day and what time were they born. You can record uh, what hospital and what town were they born in. You can record what temperature was outside when uh, they were born, which, you know, I never... I'm not quite sure if kids are interested in that as they're reading about their birth. Like, oh, interesting, 32 degrees, keep going. Uh, Who were the first visitors? And sometimes people will say, like a newspaper from the day uh, that the baby was born, to show, okay, this was what was going on in that town or in the world at that time um, when this child was born. And if if Jesus had a baby book, uh, we just heard what was recorded in it, in those first verses of Luke chapter 2. Uh, there's a newspaper clipping about uh, the Roman census that was happening in the Roman Empire under Caesar Augustus. And where was he born? Well, he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And, well, where in Bethlehem? Okay, well, you start looking at the baby book. Oh, there's this interesting picture there uh, with Jesus lying in a manger surrounded by animals. And, uh, well, there's a story behind this picture as you're, you know, flipping through the baby book and showing the relatives or showing uh, the kid later on, it's like, what is, you know, what's this mom and dad? It's like, well, let me tell you the story about why you're in a manger and why there's these animals surrounding you. And like Mary and Joseph, many others had traveled to Bethlehem to be registered for this census. And so the town was crowded. And the word in, in those verses, would, uh, many people suggest a better translation would actually be like guest room. And so you shouldn't think of like a formal inn or like a hotel or something like that where there's this guy that's like, no, sorry, you know, no vacancy. there's no rooms here. Uh, you should, Mary and Joseph probably stayed with some relatives uh, that were in Bethlehem when they're going there, and they probably, let many others who traveled to register for the census did this, had the same idea as them. And so this is a packed guest room, and there's no room for Mary and Joseph when they come to stay there. And so, okay, you guys are going to have to stay in the, the large family room which is also where they kept the animals. Like, sometimes there is an outside stable, um, and that could be the case here, too, that, okay, you guys had to stay in kind of this outside, um, kind of like lean-to thing, and that that was like where people traveling could lodge, and then, okay, there's not a room there, but the other option is, okay, the guest room is full, you're going to be in the family room, and that was where the animals were kept inside with other people. And so this is where uh, Mary ends up giving birth. And after giving birth, Mary swaddles Jesus in strips of cloth, and she places him in a manger. In a manger, in a manger we've kind of got this nice little, you know, that sounds like a nice word to us, but you know, it's just literally a feeding trough. And in that day, would uh, there's not a lot of wood in Israel, so they would make them out of stone. So it's like this piece of stone, and they would have like hollowed out kind of the middle of it. You put the, the food in there so the animals could eat it. And it's like this basin. And this is what is recorded in Jesus' ba- baby book as his birthplace. There's this interesting picture, like, and there's a story behind it. And this scene depicts Jesus' humble birth. He was not born to a rich and powerful family in a palace, he was born to a common family who were traveling under orders from the emperor, just like everyone else. They were staying in a crowded house with others, and Jesus came into this world quietly born to an insignificant couple in the world's eyes, and his birth would have gone completely unnoticed. So what does Jesus' humble birthplace tell us about him? It tells us that Jesus came for the humble. Right out at the outset of this gospel, according to Luke, it's telling us who did Jesus come for. He came for the humble. He came for the insignificant. He came for the overlooked. Jesus came for the outcast, for the forgotten. Jesus came for the common and the unimpressive. This is the story of the God of the universe coming down to become small and coming down in a small way, in a small village, to a small couple in the world's eyes. And what does Jesus' birthplace tell us about ourselves? It tells us that we don't need to impress God to come to him. We don't need to clean ourselves up. We don't need to convince him that we're good enough. We come as we are. And Christmas is this yearly reminder that God is not looking for impressive people. God is not looking for people who have it all together. God is not looking for rich or smart or powerful or good or perfect or religious people. God is looking for people who are humble. And Jesus' birth reminds us that uh, God is not picky. It reminds us of the kind of people that Jesus came for, that, that Jesus, God sent Jesus for, the humble, the low, the everyday person, the the forgettable, the downcast and the outcast. And when God becomes human, who does he choose to identify with? It could have been anyone. He could have chosen anyone to be the mother of the Son of God. But he chose Mary. God chose to have his son born in a crowded house out in the family room with the animals, where he'd be placed in the animal feeding trough with the the saliva or whatever, the stitch of the animals and crowd to half-chewed on food or whatever. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And he didn't come to be the perfect with, with the perfect or the cleaned up or those who have it all together. He didn't come to be with the popular and the impressive he came to be with those who know they need him. And So let's just pray as we consider that and move on uh, to the singing this our next song a little ton of Bethlehem and praying about the scene where he was uh, born. God, would you help us tonight to see what Jesus' birth tells us about you and about ourselves. Would you let us see that you came to be with those who are humble enough to admit their need for you. Amen. Each year, dictionary.com picks a word of the year, a word that best captures what this year was all about, what the past year is all about. So uh, if you had to take a wild guess, what do you think their year, their word of the year for 2020 was? Armageddon. Armageddon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's one guess. Anybody else else have a guess? Was it? Pandemic. Pandemic. Yeah, that was their word of the year. So they uh, explained that whatever else was happening, uh, it was happening in the context of the Pandemic. It was there putting its mark on every other event, whether it was racial tension or the election. The pandemic had its effect on the conversation and what was going on. It was not just regional or national, but it was global in its effect. But Dictionary.com also releases a a People's Choice uh, Word of the Year that is submitted by users. And this year, uh, the Word of the Year was not Armageddon, but they chose uh, Unprecedented the People's Choice Word of the Year was unprecedented. And if we all had a quarter for every time we heard somebody say, in these unprecedented times, we would all be able to afford our Christmas presents we bought for people a lot easier. And and pandemic and unprecedented are the words that describe 2020 the best, according to dictionary.com. And there's also a popular uh, Bible app that you can download on your phone called YouVersion, and it... It's installed on over 450 million devices uh, all over the world. And each year they release uh, what's the most read Bible verse of the year. And they keep track of what people search for, what people read, what people bookmark. And in 2020, they said uh, this. um, Isaiah 41.10 ranked as the most searched, read, and bookmarked verse on the app. It says this. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Well, that's not surprising, is it? In a year where the words that best capture what it was about are pandemic and unprecedented, people felt afraid and searched for Bible verses that could address that fear and could calm them and comfort them. They used search terms like fear and fear not to find Isaiah 41.10 10 that says, "Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. All. I will hold you with my righteous right hand." And as we travel back 2,000 years to the birthday of Jesus Christ, we meet a group of shepherds. And what is it that these shepherds feel in this story? What is it that they experience from the scene with Mary and Joseph in the family room, where they, where Mary just given birth and she's hold, they have their baby. Uh, Luke takes us to a nearby field about a mile or so away where shepherds were watching over their sheep in the dark of night. And the only light is coming from the moon and the stars. And and then in the darkness of night, an an angel appears with the the glory of the Lord shining around him. And they're filled with great fear. And the glory of the Lord shining around the angel would be enough to to startle you. I mean, normally you don't have shining people walking up to you. Uh, But it lights up the night. Uh, but but that would be enough to scare you. But throughout the Bible, this fear is how people respond when they find themselves in the presence of God. In Romans 3.23, the Apostle Paul says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in God's glorious presence, people suddenly have a, a clear sense of, of God's holiness, how high and majestic and lifted up and pure and glorious He is, and a clear sense of their sinfulness. In, in other words, they're made painfully aware of how far they fall short uh, and how unworthy they are. But the angel responds to their great fear by saying, Fear not. He calms their fear. And why shouldn't they be afraid? The angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. What is the good news that brings great joy? The angel continues, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The angel calms their fear in the presence of God's glory with good news. And the good news that the angel brings is that today a Savior has been born, who is Christ the Lord. This is good news of great joy for all the people, meaning it includes the shepherds. Jesus is a Savior for them. It's good news for them, and it can bring great joy to them. And so instead of great fear, they can have great joy. And then he gives them instructions for how to find the Savior. The angel says... And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. They won't go and look in a palace, but in a feeding trough. And this strange and unexpected scene of a baby swaddled in a feeding trough will serve as a sign to them that you have indeed found uh, the baby that will save you, the king that has been born now this day. And then the angel isn't alone. The story goes on. It says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. An army of angels appears singing praise to God. And this is the the third song in Luke about Jesus' birth and its significance. And we have many great Christmas carols that we're singing tonight, and many are hundreds of years old. But we would call these songs in Luke the first Christmas carols, and they're 2,000 years old. And this one is Heaven's Christmas carol, telling us what does Heaven think about Jesus' birth? What do they think is, is its significance? A Savior is born, but what is he saving us from? Uh, and the Christmas song of the angels tells us. And the two lines of the song match up with each other. Glory is given to God in the highest, meaning in heaven. Heaven is singing God's glory. And this means God gets the credit for salvation. It's, it's all him. He's the one who does it. He gets the praise. We contribute nothing to our salvation except the need for it. And so glory is given to God in heaven. And the second line addresses what's given to earth, uh, to humanity on earth. Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. So it's glory to God in heaven, and it's God's peace to people on earth. So what is this peace that's given to people? We talked about it a bit on Sunday. Peace refers back to the Hebrew word of shalom, which means wholeness, completeness, harmony, and well-being. Shalom, if things are in shalom, it means they are the way they ought to be. To bring shalom is to take what's broken and restore it to wholeness. Taking what isn't as it ought to be and making it as it ought to be. Really, peace on earth means heaven has come to earth. For there to be shalom on earth, it means this is like heaven. Heaven's come to earth. When you version the Bible app, uh, reported on the most read Bible verse this year, they also shared this. They said, Bible searches spiked corresponding to major events with fear becoming the app's top search term in the first month, few months of the year, justice in the spring, and healing trending throughout the year. And so if you line those up with what was happening during the year, fear was a major search at the start of the pandemic. Justice was a major search after and around the murder of George Floyd as our nation and the world broke out in protest for justice. And in the midst of a global pandemic and racial tension, in divisive politics, healing was a trending search all year, showing our awareness that things are not as they ought to be and need to be healed. And these searches reveal a desire for peace, for shalom. And when we look at our world, we know things aren't as they ought to be. We we long for peace. We long for our world to be healed. But at the same time, if we take a good long look at ourselves, we realize that we also are not as we ought to be. The world isn't as it ought to be because people aren't as they ought to be. And perhaps you think, well, I'm not that bad. But it's also true that you aren't that good. God's command to us is to love others as we love ourselves, but often we're much better at loving ourselves than we are loving others as much as we love ourselves. It's our natural bent, And God also commands us to love him with our whole being, and we quite often love other things as a higher priority than him. So how will Jesus bring peace on earth? How will he bring the healing that we need? How will Jesus make things how they ought to be? Should he get rid of all the people who are causing the problems? And we might think, well, that, that's a good solution. All these people I see on TV or the people I see around me, all these people causing problems, he should get rid of them. That's a good solution. Until we realize that we actually contribute to the problem in more ways than we'd like. Now, Jesus came as a Savior to save those who are causing the problems. The deepest peace we need is the peace between us and God. The greatest sickness that needs healing is the sickness of sin that turns us away from God and is killing us spiritually. The thing that is most messed up in this world and needs fixing is our relationship with God. And Jesus was born to bring shalom, wholeness, and well-being to that. He came to make our relationship with God as it should be, to make us as we should be. But how would he do that? The Son of God was not born to live a long, happy life on earth. He wasn't sent by God on some sort of exploratory mission, come down to earth and check out how things were, and then come back to heaven and report and tell them, you know, like somebody getting sent off to Mars and coming back and telling us what it was like. That wasn't the Son of God's mission. We know where Jesus' story ends. And we don't usually think of the cross and Jesus' death at Christmas, but it's all right here in what the angels say to the shepherds and what they sing. Why is peace necessary? Because our sin and selfishness have messed up our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our world. Why is salvation necessary? Because we have something to be saved from. We're in a mess of our own making. We rebel against God and we're under His judgment. And so how does Jesus bring healing? His story, we know where it ends. He dies from the sickness of sin on the cross. How does Jesus bring wholeness? He's broken in our place on the cross. How does Jesus bring salvation? He takes what we deserve in our place on the cross. Jesus brings peace by taking upon himself everything that we've done that destroys peace. That's how he brings it to us. And Jesus' humble birth tells us what the eternal Son of God did. Paraphrasing Philippians 2, this is what he did. Though he was God, he did not count equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or benefit. But he emptied himself of his status and privilege as the Son of God by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Almighty was swaddled. The Creator was cradled and carried. Deity died. This is the humility of Christ, that the eternal, almighty Son of God came to earth. Humbled itself. And like the shepherds, in God's glorious presence, we would all have great fear because we've sinned and we fall short of His glory. But we can hear the words, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Our Savior has been born to bring us peace to stand in God's presence with our relationship with him whole and healed and healthy. And all the credit goes to him as the angel said, glory to God in the highest. Let's pray. God, would you let us today receive Jesus as the peace you've provided for all that is wrong with us and with our world. Would you let us receive him as the greatest gift you've ever given? Amen. Well, baby book may record uh, the first people who came to visit. So there might be pictures in a baby book of uh, grandparents or and an aunt and uncles and maybe close friends or other relatives. And so as we think about uh, Jesus, if he had a baby book, uh, who would be the first visitors that came to visit him, whose pictures would be included in in his baby book? What mix of people would a, a picture capture? From the field with their sheep, the shepherds travel with haste to find Mary with her baby. And they find him exactly as the angels said they would find him. They find him lying in a manger. And then they tell those present what the angels said made known to them. And most of the people around reacted with wonder. Mary treasures up all that was said, pondering it in her heart. And the shepherds return to the field, glorifying and praising God after they've come for their visit. And so who are these shepherds? Who are these visitors that are recorded in Jesus' baby book? Many respected people in the Old Testament were shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the the greatest king in Israel. Psalm 23 that David wrote says, The Lord is my shepherd. And often the image used for leaders in the entire Bible is that of a shepherd. So while there is nothing wrong or, or shameful with the role of a shepherd itself, it was a lowly job. In terms of social status, shepherds were, were not high ranking. They were blue-collar workers who had to move around a lot because of their job. You know, they had this uh, flock of sheep that they needed to move around to get food for. This also kept them from participating in many of the religious rituals of the day because you've got this flock of sheep, you can't very well you know, always get them to go where, you, uh, where the, the religious rituals are happening, you need to go where the food is and you can't leave them alone by themselves. And the Sabbath was a very important ritual to the Jewish people of that day. And on the Sabbath, it was, you don't work. And the religious teachers of that day, the Pharisees, had put all these other uh, rules around the Sabbath to make sure that people didn't work, like how many steps you could take, or you know, you're allowed to do this, this, and that. So it was like, these are things that count as work, these are things that don't. And so it's like, we cannot work on the Sabbath. And so the, for uh, shepherds, they were seen as Sabbath breakers to a certain extent, because it's like, well... I've got my sheep. What am I supposed to do? Like I've got to still take care of my sheep. I can't just stop taking care of my sheep on the Sabbath. And so by this time in history, uh, they have all these rules around the Sabbath that they're breaking. And so from a social standpoint and a religious standpoint, the the shepherds were not significant people. They were also not seen as highly religious people by others. These people aren't even keeping the Sabbath. I don't see you up at the temple, coming to the temple and doing stuff. But these are the people who received the royal announcement of Jesus' birth. The announcement of the birth of the Savior of the world was not given to the rich and powerful of the world. It wasn't given to the religious elite of Israel. It could have gone to the high priests. It could have gone to the Pharisees. But the announcement was not given to them. It wasn't given to the influencers, or was significant or the impressive in the world's eyes. It was given to lowly shepherds. And these are the kind of people gathered around Jesus on the night he was born. And these are the kind of people that are gathered around him during his adult ministry at later on in life. You see that the people around Jesus are the poor, the outcasts, the sinners, the rejects, the guilty and ashamed, prostitutes, the low, and the humble. People gathered around him that are making the religious the, fo- the religious teachers say, what are you doing hanging around with all these people? Like if the if the Savior of the world, if the King was coming, wouldn't you want to be hanging out and getting in the, on the good side of all the, the high up people, all the high class people, all these religious teachers, and people want to be hanging out with them? What are you doing hanging out with all these people who aren't following any of the laws, all these sinners, all these lawbreakers? And as they walked away from the manger that night, you think the shepherds looked at each other and wondered, why us? Why did God tell us to come? We aren't anything special. And that's exactly the point. Jesus was born to people, to a couple that didn't have money. His mom was a teenager. That was the age that people would get uh, betrothed and engaged for marriage in that day. And her husband-to-be was a blue-collar carpenter. And Jesus was born to nobodies in the world's eyes. We would have walked right by them on the street because nothing about them made have stand out. Jesus was not born in a palace surrounded by gold and luxury. He was born in a crowded house and laid in animal feeding trough. He grew up in the rural backcountry town of Nazareth that people make fun of. The first people to celebrate his birth were shepherds who barely had anything to their name except the sheep that they were sleeping with. And they're nobodies like his parents, unimpressive, insignificant in the world's eyes. And Heaven's Christmas Carol told us that God's peace doesn't come to everyone. Peace comes to those with whom he is pleased, with whom God is pleased. And so what kind of people please God? On whom does God's favor rest? The story is telling us not on the impressive, not on the significant, not on those who have much to offer, not on those who have done great things. It doesn't matter your status in this world. What matters is your heart condition before God. God doesn't discriminate based on worldly definitions or classifications. He doesn't exclude people based on social class, income, significance, impressiveness, goodness, or anything of that sort. And he doesn't include people on that basis either this is good news of great joy for all of the people. It's peace among those with whom he is pleased, and he's pleased with those who respond to him with a heart of humility. God exalts the humble, but opposes the proud. God is drawn toward humble people. God moves towards people who make themselves low before him. People who come to him poor and needy with nothing to offer but the empty hand of faith. And there's a Christmas song that came out this year called O Come All You Unfaithful. And the story behind it is that a Christian woman named Lisa Clow was attending a church service that was kicking off the, the Christmas season. And usually she would be on stage singing with the, the rest of the folks that were leading the Christmas service. And she told them, I can't, I can't do it the year, this year, and she didn't explain why, but her backstory was that she had just been dealing with a bunch of financial stress she had miscarried twins, and she was battling a deep relational bitterness. And she said, I, can't, I, just can't, I just can't be up there reading this year. And the first song of the service was, O come all ye faithful. And the first words of the song are, O come all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. And she says they just clobbered her. She stopped singing after those first two lines. And she says, uh, I, she, her thoughts were, I've been so unfaithful. My joy was dwindled, and I'm a triumphant failure. And she didn't sing the rest of the service. And after the service, her mind was, was still churning, wondering, is that really who is invited to come to Jesus, the faithful, the joyful, the triumphant? If so, then I am hopeless. And that night, she, she, her thoughts continued, and she went and, and wrote down lyrics to a song to express how she was feeling. And, and those lyrics eventually got worked into a song called, Oh, come all you unfaithful. So let me read those lyrics to you, and hear, and let you. I want you to hear them as an invitation for you uh, to come to Jesus. And so she wrote these lyrics: Oh, come, all you unfaithful, come weak and unstable, come. Know you are not alone. Oh, come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying. Come, see what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. Oh, come, bitter and broken. Come with fears unspoken. Come taste of His perfect love. O come, guilty and hiding ones. There is no need to run. See what your God has done. He's the Lamb who was given, slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing. Come, He is the offering. Come see what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. And we don't come to Jesus because we are joyful and triumphant. We are joyful and triumphant because of Jesus. We are joyful and triumphant because of what God has done on our behalf. I think that's what the song is really trying to help us express. And Christmas is our yearly remembrance of our Savior's humble birth, which is our invitation to not let anything keep us from coming to Him. Jesus is not a Savior for the cleaned up, for the super religious or the good enough. He's a savior for the broken, the needy, the hurting, and the fearful. And that's all of us. But we have to be humble enough to admit it and come to him. So let me pray. God, thank you that we do not need to earn our way to you or impress you with what we've done. Would you help us to come to you humble and low, to receive Jesus as a savior he was born to be help us stand in awe of what you have done. In his name we pray. Amen.